The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Lemonade stand. That was the first job that I held when I was growing up. That was the first job that I had that was not working for a family member or a friend. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, that cup of lemonade that you buy for a quarter and you sell on the sidewalk edge. No, I'm talking about that $3.50 lemonade with the collectible cup that is sold at those traveling carnival events. That was my first job. It was called Bob's Lemonade. I don't know who Bob was, but that was it. And after that summer of, you know, navigating the cutthroat lemonade business, I went on and I, I worked as a cashier for Menards for about a year. And, and then after that, I worked at Sam's Club. And working those jobs, as I, I worked those types of jobs, you learn to count the hours and the minutes until your next break or until the end of your shift. You know what I mean? I'm sure that many of you have done that type of work, the kind where you are counting down the minutes and the hours. If you've never worked a job like that, uh, then maybe you can relate to staring at that clock on the wall at school and counting down the minutes and the hours until finally you get to go home. Or maybe if it's not the clock, you're watching the calendar, waiting until, man, finally, summer break. Or when you have that realization, that awful realization that, you know what, summer break is no more. You will never, ever have another summer break again in your entire life. And then all of a sudden you find yourself counting the days until the weekend. You know, we count because work is toil. It's hard. Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, our, our labor, our laboring has been filled with just toil. And this side of heaven, unfortunately, that is always going to be the case. Work is always going to be difficult. But because Jesus Christ has come and he is redeeming this world, because the gospel is an instrument of freedom for the Christian, work does not have to be quite so hard. You know, the world tries to address this struggle of work. And, and they say, maybe you've heard this, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. You heard that one? You know, at first that, that mantra seems to make sense until you try it on. Um, first of all, many, if not most of us, do not actually get the opportunity to make a living off of our dream job. I mean, the Green Bay Packers only have one starting quarterback. What are you going to do? But secondly, even if you do have the opportunity to work in a role that you are incredibly passionate about, trust me, it's still work. I have never met someone that all of a sudden found themselves confused about whether or not they were at work. You know. You know you're at work. Sure, we might have a job that we prefer more than another, and, and we would all love to do a job that we love, but it's still work. If, if you find yourself today just struggling with the toil of work, you know, maybe you should consider, instead of making it your life goal to do what you love, might I suggest that you try to love the one for whom you work. 
Today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through 4, verse 1. And we're going to be wrestling with the motivation to work, the master of work, and our calling to work. Would you please turn with me to Colossians 3? And I have a blank in my notes where it says the page number, so I can't give you that. But Colossians 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm actually going to start in verse 17, a little bit above, and then skip. Colossians 3, starting in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. And skipping to 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you that we can look at your word and learn from it. God, I ask that you would teach us this morning from your word, by your spirit, that we would come to understand you better, that we would come to recognize your mercies and your grace and what it is that you have called us to. God, we ask that you would be with us during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I get too far into this passage, There's a little issue that I need to address because Paul in this passage is speaking into a context, a particular time, and and we need to understand that time before we can really apply it to us. And then we can extrapolate it a little bit and apply it to our context. You see, Paul is not addressing employees and employers as we think of them. Rather, he is addressing slaves and masters. It would be completely appropriate, and some of your Bibles probably do, translate verse 22, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And that begs us to ask two different questions. First of all, does the Bible endorse slavery? Kind of a big deal. And secondly, what was slavery in those days? Well, the quick answer to the first question is no. The Bible does not endorse slavery. In this passage, Paul is not endorsing slavery. Rather, he is commenting on how Christians ought to live in relationship according to the particular context that they were in. You see, slavery was a reality of that day. And so Paul is addressing how Christian slaves and masters should interact. In a similar way, in the previous verses, Paul actually was not endorsing slavery marriage, and parenthood. He was merely commenting on how Christians ought to live 
within those relationships. But if you look elsewhere in the Bible, you will find that marriage and parenthood is endorsed by Scripture. It is a good thing. It is commended. But slavery is not. The Bible does not endorse slavery. But secondly, as we consider this passage, some of you may be wondering, all right, fine, so the Bible doesn't endorse slavery, but why does Paul not immediately condemn slavery? Why doesn't he immediately condemn this institution? And we have to keep in mind that slavery in those days was not the picture that we have in our mind when we think of slavery. It was a little bit more like indentured servitude. Slavery in those days was not racial slavery like what our country has experienced in its history. Often, slaves would actually voluntarily put themselves into that position. And if you were to wander around the streets of ancient Rome, the majority of people that you would meet would actually be slaves. Not only was slavery inclusive of all different races, but slaves held many different roles. Educators, cooks, janitors, so on. Often we think of slavery as only the remedial tasks, but in those days, some of the slave jobs were things we would not consider remedial at all, and others were. And so slavery back then and slavery as we understand it are two very different things. But at the same time, we can't say that the slave-master relationship is exactly like today's employee and employer relationship either. Because if you were a slave, you had zero rights, you had no public voice, and you would not have any kind of inheritance. And we need to keep that in mind as we consider what Paul is saying to the Colossian church. But at the same time, we really don't have an institution like that today. And it would not be too much of a stretch to take Paul's words and apply them, connecting those dots between ancient master-slave type relationships and today's workplace. So that ends my very long aside and brings us to the issues of our motivation to work, the master of our work, and the calling to work. We're going to start with our motivation. Paul tells us what our motivation should be and what it should not be. Verse 22 and 23, if you look at it, it says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Don't be a people pleaser. Do not let your motivation for work be the opinion of other men and women, other people. All of us, myself included, have at one time or another felt the pressure to try and, you know, impress those around us. We worry about what others think about us and how we're perceived. Are we valuable? Are we viewed as someone who knows what they're doing, who is contributing something meaningful? Are we viewed as competent, trustworthy, knowledgeable? Are you a people pleaser? I have a a few questions that you can ask yourself as you kind of dig around in your own heart and ask yourself, am I a people pleaser? One, does your behavior change when you know that you're being watched? Do you become overly anxious that others are judging you? 
Do you constantly test the temperature around you, trying to gauge how are others responding to me? Are you unable to make a decision or complete a task for fear of doing it wrong? Do you have a hard time saying no? I saw this t-shirt, it was a graphic, and it said, quote, I am a recovering people pleaser. And then in parentheses, is that okay? You know, Paul tells us that our motivation for work should not be to people please. And for those of us out here who are people pleasers, which as I said is probably everyone at some point or another, you recognize what the problem with people pleasing is. The problem is that it never ends. The day will never come when you will be able to completely rest in the certain knowledge that you are good enough. You know, work is it's hard. It's hard enough by itself simply because of the curse. And if you add that burden, the burden of trying to obtain the unobtainable, well, your work is going to be downright miserable. Instead, Paul says that we should work heartily for the Lord with sincerity of heart. Now, when he says sincerity of heart, another way to say that would be singleness of heart. In other words, our hearts should not be divided. Our hearts should be exclusively for the Lord. When the Lord and not man is our motivation, then we are able to work with an entirely different perspective. Whereas we will never be able to perfectly please man through Jesus Christ, we are perfectly pleasing to God. In verse 24, Paul says that we know that we will receive an inheritance. Imagine for a second how that must have sounded to slaves who had no earthly inheritance, but they were guaranteed a heavenly one. That inheritance is proof. It is proof of God's love for us. It is proof that we are no longer slaves, that we are children, that we are beloved children of God. And there is an enormous difference between working to obtain favor and working because you are favored. Work for the Lord and for the Lord alone. Because he loves you. And when we know. And when we feel that we are greatly loved. Our hearts cannot help but to respond in kind. And when you love the one whom you are working for. It doesn't feel like work. When your love is self-centered. What do I want to do? What do they think of me? Then your work is going to feel like work. But the gospel message is that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are free. We are not free from work. We are free from people pleasing. Work heartily for the Lord with singleness of heart. But, you know, 
God's love for us is not the only reason that we work for him and him alone. It's also because ultimately, God, the Lord, is the master of our work. Because of this, our work should look different. The litmus test for does the gospel actually work in my workplace is do others come to you and see? Do they see that there is a difference in how you go about your work? Paul reminds both the slaves and the masters that there is a greater master to whom we all report. The slaves are supposed to obey in everything, knowing, if you look at verse 25, that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Paul is telling the slaves who may be tempted to slack off, to cut corners or secretly rebel, that there is no partiality. God is not going to cut them any slack just because they are in a more difficult socioeconomic position. God does not cut them any slack because their true master, the one whom they are actually wronging, is not their earthly master, but God. If you are here today and you feel like you really identify much more with the slaves than the masters, if you feel like the life that you have been given is one of lesser status and it's hard, know this. God does not view that as an excuse to break the rules, to put forth less effort, or to disrespect those in authority. God is your master, and all that you do for him is for him, and it represents him. And I know it can be popular in some companies to to gripe about all the ways that the man is getting you down, to constantly complain about how those in authority are mismanaging things, right? The Christian, however, should be grateful for his or her position, knowing that ultimately this is from God. The masters at the same time are reminded in 4.1, guess what? They are also slaves. God is their master. They are commanded to treat their slaves justly and fairly. And for those of you here who are in positions of authority, I know that there is great temptation. We struggle with sin and our flesh to use that authority for personal gain or to take advantage of those who are beneath you. Let me remind you, That any authority that you are allowed to have is given to you from your master for the purpose of executing justice and equality. You see, our master, God, is a faithful and just God. And it is because of his faithfulness and his justice towards Christ that our sins are forgiven. Because he is faithful and just, if we confess our sins, he will forgive us our sins. See, if God the Father were not faithful and just, then all of us would be condemned. Therefore, earthly masters, if you are not acting in the same way towards those whom you have authority over, then you are actually bursting the very bubble upon which you stand. God is our master. But he has also called us to a particular work. Why do I have to work? 
Doesn't that kind of sound like the type of question a child would ask and an adult would think? By the time we become adults, we sort of stop asking that question or, or we don't really think too much further beyond, well, I have to because I need to put bread on the table. The more complete answer, the, the deeper answer to that question, why do we work, is because God has called us to work. Sinclair Ferguson said, Man was made to work because the God who made him was a working God. God was at work in the creation of the universe when all things were very good. And God was at work also after sin entered the world, going about the business of redeeming and restoring what is broken. As God's creation, as his image bearer, as the steward we have been called to work alongside the Lord, to participate in his mission of redemption. We look around in the world and it is broken. I don't have to prove that to you. You know that. You feel that. This world is not right. But God is at work redeeming it. And we are part of that. Because all work is given to us from our master who is in heaven. That means that all work, all jobs has dignity and it has purpose. It doesn't matter whether you are a missionary, a garbage man, or an accountant. All work has dignity in the eyes of the Lord. Sometimes, you know, we create this false dichotomy in our minds, this false division between what we might call spiritual work Things like being a pastor or an elder or a Sunday school teacher. And secular work. Things like being a, a welder or a farmer or a stockbroker. You know, the false dichotomy is believing that one of these is more valuable than the other. The reason that we are tempted to think that way is because we actually have too small a view of God's kingdom. You see, when sin entered into the world, all of creation was cursed. Every single aspect of creation was corrupted. It was broken by sin. And God is not okay with that. That means that every single aspect of creation needs to be redeemed. In the 16th century, there were plagues that broke out over Italy, and, and there were those believers who bravely remained in the cities to care for and pray for those who were dying. And we should admire the courage and the faith of those believers. But there was actually a, a more complete, a fuller response seen in 16th century France, where Christians not only cared for the spiritual needs of the sick, but they also introduced unsurpassed hygienic measures, which actually pushed back the advances of the plague. If all of creation has been corrupted, then all of creation must be redeemed. All of God's kingdom has to be made right. And so we are not only caring for the souls of those who are dying in this world, but actually by doing things like combating disease, a symptom of brokenness, we are redeeming and bringing about the kingdom of God. Abraham Kuyper said, the whole creation, all of it, is a theater for the mighty works of God, first in creation and then in recreation. That means that God is not content only to save 
human beings. God wants to save social systems, economic structures, race, gender, and class relationships. The gospel message does not just affect you and my walk with God. It affects every single aspect of our lives. You know, this um, September, I'm going to be taking the final exams in the ordination process for the PCA, our denomination. And before you can be ordained in the PCA, you have to have what they refer to as a call, which is church lingo for a job offer. But it's not just pastors who are called by God for a particular job. All of you have a calling. All of you have been called to participate in the mission of God. All of you have been called to participate in the mission of the cross, in the mission of redemption. If you are in sales, when you go about your business, if you are completely honest with your customers, and if you report your commission with integrity, if you stick to your own territory and don't encroach on the territory of others, you are winning back sales for the kingdom of God. If you drive a bus and you obey the rules of the law, if you are welcoming to your passengers and you welcome them with joy and offer them Christ-like hospitality, if you go about your work with pride, you are winning back bus driving for the kingdom of God. That is how Martin Luther said, a dairymaid can milk cows to the glory of God. God wants to redeem every aspect of creation. And your work, when done, God's way is a part of that. And you may be here today, and you hate your job. I have news for you. God has called you to do the work that you are doing. And this job, however long of a season the Lord may have you in it for, he has deemed it fit. If your work is God's calling upon your life and you are struggling with it, let me encourage you. Consider, do you love the one for whom you work? Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I don't know the specifics of how God has redeemed you this week. Maybe you were harsh or abusive towards a loved one. Maybe you succumbed to some sort of sexual sin. Maybe you lied in order to save face. Or maybe you've been acting out in a critical and judgmental way. I don't know the specifics of your sin. But I do know that Jesus Christ suffered and died 
a brutal death on the cross, that the full wrath of God was poured out on him to redeem you, to forgive your sin, so that it is not wrath that is hanging over your head, but love. It is not judgment that will fall upon you. It is an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. Take that redemption and that forgiveness and bring it into your work. Let that be your motivation. That our master has not dealt with us as we deserve, but that he has treated us better than we ever dared hope. And he has called us to join him in the redemption of all things. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who has redeemed us, that you are a God who has forgiven us, that you are a God that is changing all things and restoring them forever. We thank you, Lord.